Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by the Englert Theater. In this week's episode, we'll catch up with Russ Curry, who owns and operates an experimental music label out of Coralville called Curious Music. Then we'll hear from Katie Amborek, physician and co-director of the University of Iowa Healthcare LGBTQ Clinic, about her career and, of course, her best show ever. Now let's get right into it. What do you say? Russ Curry founded Curious Music in 1988. It's a family-owned record label based out of Coralville that curates experimental and reflective music. After a nearly 20-year hiatus, Russ is back in the game and has a slew of new projects underway. Okay, Russ, I'm so excited to talk with you today. I had so much fun uh, researching about everything you do. I'm so stoked to have you here. Thanks. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Ellie. Um, so can we just get a quick little orange origin story uh, for Curious Music, where it all began? It began in Iowa, really, when I was about 12 years old, gr- growing up in, in the Midwest and with with the wisdom of a 12-year-old thinking uh, <laughs> the Midwest is gray and conformist and I don't like all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. I have since found that the party comes from the inside, not the outside. But mm. at that time, when I was 12... Uh, you know, I was like, wow, everybody does the same thing all the time. And every, you know, my universe is gray. And then uh, I accidentally was exposed to uh, German electronic music uh, one day, which was, uh, how do you say it? It's one of the things I was looking for. And I didn't know I was looking for it until mm. I found it. And so that was my lightning bolt uh, moment being exposed to this music that was utterly different than anything in my universe. That music really helped guide me in a way and sent a message to me that you uh, you can be your own person and, and define your own path forward. And uh, so, et cetera and so forth. I had a radio show in college and I slowly started putting CDs out and things like that and getting involved in music publishing and licensing and all that stuff. It just sort of grew and grew and started going on tours in the mid to late 90s and stuff like that. And then I quit in <laughs> 2001 because I was sick of it. It was, it was not, I, I say it wasn't feeding my soul. And then in 2016, there were a couple events in my life. One of them was my father passed away. Another one was David Bowie passed away the same year. Mm-hmm. Those two events uh, gave me, caused a period of reflection in me. And then I started the label up again almost five years ago now. It's been going great since then. Uh, and from a technological perspective, <laughs> much, much different mm-hmm. than taking people on tour in 1996. I love, like, in my head, the mascot just envisioning a 12-year-old boy listening <laughs> to German electronic music. like yeah, listening to craft. <laughs> yeah. Like it was you know. really odd, especially at that age, you know. Yeah. Um, I, ha- I hadn't even discovered uh, other things you you find out at that age, too. Uh, and it, I don't know what it was, but my brain was ready for it at 12. And uh, it really hit me. Well, preparing for this interview, I found, and you've already touched on both of these, you know, you have sort of uh, helped me rethink some of the dispositions I have. One, about being an artist in the Midwest, because I don't know, I never thought about it that hard. 
But, you know, in my head, I'm like, oh, it's an unglamorous place to be, you know. I used to apologize. I used to apologize for being in Iowa or running a label in Iowa. Uh, And I've since done a complete 180 on that perspective. The landscape of Iowa, the overall culture, not only, you know, inspires, but seems to inform your work like you described. Yes. The music you look for, the sound you look for, mm-hmm. you describe it as a, a couple of Grant Wood paintings, oh, right? Yeah. Yeah. You're like, this is what this yeah. is what I want this whole thing to feel like, these Grant Wood paintings. And I went and yeah. looked at them and they are, you know, I, I, ne- Very odd. I, know, I never appreciated Grant Wood, but I go and look at them like, wow, these are like really strange and They surreal, are really but. strange. Yes, they are. Uh, he's a great example. I th- it was this, it's, it's been this great serendipity almost that um, Grant Wood literally is from my backyard, the same place where I'm from. He lived in Iowa City for a long Mm. time, Mm -hmm. just a few blocks from where you are right now, actually. Yeah, that's that's awesome. So rethinking Mm -hmm. being an artist in the Midwest, number one. Yes. uh, Challenged idea for me. Number two, I have become very I would say maybe jaded or I don't know if it's self-pity, but the the streaming model mm-hmm. of the music industry, I have always been like, down yeah. with streaming, down. Yeah. But you seem after, you know, you you took a hiatus, you know, right before mm-hmm. it totally launched. Yeah. And then yes. <laughs> almost 20 so. years later, you jump right mm-hmm. back in in the thick of it. And you seem to yeah. appreciate um, what it's doing for your label and your artists. Can you talk about what it's yeah, like? Yeah, I, I think I do. I think it's part part of an age and generational thing. Back in the 90s, putting albums out, designing records and distributing them and communicating with people. Mm-hmm. You know, cell phones did not exist when I started uh, my label. They literally did not exist. So coming back into it, I know how to do it the hard way. So I have a great appreciation. So I think more so me than someone like you, because of your age, you grew up with it and it's just second nature for you. And that's, I don't I don't shake my finger at you because you're your age and you, you didn't have to do it like I did it. So what? That's just the way the world is. But, mm-hmm. but, but I think I recognize how fortunate I am to be able to do all of these things. And the beauty of running the label now is I have the knowledge along with the technology. And I really um, like that. I have a great appreciation for that. What I don't like is that music has been devalued because of technology yeah, and because of the access to not only music, all arts, but uh, certainly music. People do not pay for it anymore. Yeah. It's kind of a double-edged sword because it is really powerful that people can access all kinds of music. People can really find their niche in a really easy way, but also on the other hand, yeah, that is devalued. This art form in a way. Yeah, it's a shame. Harmful. Because we've devalued music, it feels more disposable. Like I just recently was talking to... um, an artist and he's like you know you can re- there's a real difference between hearing music and listening to music and it kind yes, of feels like people are l- doing more of the hearing and less of the listening yeah that's a really good point because what i try to do with my label is i call it a curated label mm-hmm. so i'm trying to create a body of work with each release 
that means something to someone and that someone wants to pay for it. Someone wants to pay for the vinyl. Someone wants to pay for the download because we're, we're making these beautiful things that are important to them. They're, they're a kind of soul food, I like to think of it. And uh, somebody wants to pay for that double vinyl album that we've put so much love and energy and creative thought into that they get it they value it and they want to buy it. That always mm -hmm. comes second to me after the fact that I'm working with these artists to, to make a beautiful creative thing, work of art. But I, and, and, you know, it, our subscription base continues to grow and we do sell a lot and so for, for a small label, but I, I'd like that to, that worm to continue to turn, so to speak, where people do value this as works of art. Um, and often somebody's, um, career, so to speak, quote unquote, or what they choose to do with their life, you can't make a living if you're making an album and nobody's paying for it. Even if 10,000 people listen to it yeah. and you make a dollar fifty out of it, that, that model is messed up. Yeah. I have been streaming music for basically as long as I can remember. Yeah. And I've in recent years had to catch myself and be like, I, this is my favorite artist. I've listened to their music, ev almost every single one of their albums, but I've never bought anything from them. Exactly. exactly. And I'm like, I am an artist. <laughs> so I was thinking like, yeah, I, what I is I do the same thing Unavoid <laughs> unavoidably. I will, like when I'm in my car sometimes or when I'm somewhere where there's not a CD, I'll listen to YouTube on my iPhone. I, I think it's really unfortunate. But on the other hand, like you said, it's wonderful that anything I want is at my fingertips. There, there is a plus side mm -hmm. to that for sure. I think we just have to be conscious consumers, continue yeah. thinking yeah. about. and Like with anything else. Yeah, with anything else and continue yeah. pushing the narrative forward. Um, well, my last question for you, mm -hmm. can you yeah. tell us a little bit about some of the projects you've done recently and some of the mm -hmm. things you've got on the docket for the future? Yeah, so the last three um, CDs or albums that I put out, I think of as sort of a group because each of the three were with artists that I've never worked with before. And they all happen to be a lot younger than me, but that's just coincidence, I think. Probably the highest profile one, which has sort of shifted things for Curious, is um, we did the soundtrack for a documentary that Mark Ruffalo produced. The, the soundtrack is called Music for the Film, Invisible Hand. And then Invisible Hand is a documentary about the rights of nature movement, where you have a human or other things that have rights. Why can't? nature or land have rights. Fantastic documentary. So I put the soundtrack out on Curious. That sort of raised the profile of the label in a way that it wouldn't have otherwise been. And then uh, towards the end of the year, I released a wonderful album by um, uh, artist, her debut by Amanda Berlin called Green Cone. Uh, she makes this really cool, sort of ethereal music. It's hard to describe like a lot of music on my label, yep. <laughs> um, but she uses feel recordings and you know, the spacious piano and ambiences and, and um, bird call and stuff like that. Uh, and it's a really great album that came out. And then I just released The Zone by Eve Merritt. The Zone is, is four pieces. It's this loud, abrasive uh, synthesizer improvisations, four of them. Uh, that are, are really, really cool. I just put that out just a few weeks ago. The the big 
thing that's coming out, which is still sort of under wraps, but I'll tell you a little bit. In July, we're going to launch a uh, museum installation, mm. which is based on the um, sound and noises of Dieter Mobius, who was a German, going sort of back to the roots of Curious Music, yeah. um, a, a German composer, musician, really dear friend of mine, who died in 2015. Tim Story, who's on my label, is creating a new sound installation with with a, quite a number, probably about 10 or so, well-known contributors who are contributing music to this project. Uh, and it's going to be an installation. It's going to be a CD. It's going to be vinyl. It's going to be a museum program. Mm. Um, and we're literally working on that over every day. We're going to announce that formally in July. And I'm super excited about that. So there you have it. That's what's going Sounds on. Sounds incredible. Well, yeah, we'll be is. looking out for that. That sounds yeah. like it'll be amazing. Um, yes. And of course, everything else you and the artists you work with do, we'll be keeping an eye on. And it's been wonderful talking with you today, Russ. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Ellie. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm glad we could just turn around this quickly. I really enjoyed talking to you. And um, I wish the best for you and all the folks at Englert and all of us. I know we're more than ready uh, to start seeing each other and performing for each other and enjoying people's performances and getting that live art and music vibe, which is really irreplaceable, mm. um, going. We'll be right back in conversation with Katie and Bourne. But first, a word from our sponsors. Announcing the new Friends of the Inglert program with benefits that span across our festivals, enhance access for students, and create a strong foundation for our mission to inspire and activate positive community growth through the arts. Since our closure in March 2019 due to the pandemic, our nonprofit theater has lost most of our earned income from ticket sales. We need the help of supporters like you now more than ever before. Joining Friends of the Inglert gets you great access to our 2021 digital season, including online concerts, educational programming, and Witching Hour and Mission Creek festivals. Please consider making a monthly, quarterly, or annually recurring donation to Friends of the Inglert, and then get going to some great digital events with those good vibes knowing that you're helping Iowa City's last remaining historic theater get through this difficult time. Make a difference in your community, get great perks. It's a win-win. Join Friends of the Inglert by visiting inglert.org slash friends. Among many other things, Katie Mborek is a physician, clinical professor, and co-director of the University of Iowa Healthcare LGBTQ Clinic, which she co-founded back in 2012. She's also been a huge force behind the expansion of telehealth communications and other efforts related to combating the COVID-19 pandemic. Katie, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to chat. We all know you're super busy, so we really appreciate it. Oh, Ellie, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course, we could talk about, you know, all of the wonderful things that uh, everyone at UIHC has been doing um, related to COVID, providing care, the telehealth, 
uh, communications expanding. Um, but what we actually want to talk more about is the uh, LGBTQ healthcare clinic that was founded by yourself and Dr. Nicole Nicely and opened in 2012. And I'm kind of curious of, I guess, just the origin stories of how that all began. That is one of my favorite stories to tell. Dr. Nisley is a force to reckon with. She is an amazing woman. She is an outstanding medical provider. And just as I was finishing my family medicine residency, I went to a trans healthcare panel and Dr. Nisley happened to be there as well. And we both separately sort of stood up and asked some questions. I was starting to think about when I would join faculty at the university and what I wanted, you know, back then, like our paper intake forms to actually say, and thinking about ways to really create a welcoming and affirming environment. And Dr. Nisley asked some similar type questions, and she came up to me afterwards and introduced herself. Um, and she said to me, you know what, Iowa River Landing out in Coraville is going to open soon. And we all in internal medicine need to do an evening clinic. And I was thinking, I have this one patient who identifies as transgender. And that is what made me come here today because I felt ill-equipped to care for her. I heard her tell her story and I felt like we at UIHC haven't done an adequate job of providing care for LGBTQ plus people. And I thought, I would really like to start an LGBTQ clinic. Would you like to partner with me and do that? And I'm thinking, as I'm sitting listening to this panel just 20 minutes earlier, that when I am old with gray hair and have, you know, enough political capital and some clout, that I would love one day to be able to really primarily provide care for LGBTQ plus people. And here I am, fresh, green, not even out of residency, being afforded this opportunity. And so I was somewhat skeptical because I just didn't know all of what Nicole Nisley um, could actually do. But I said, yes, of course. And then for the next six to 12 months, we had meeting after meeting with everyone from the hospital attorneys to our leadership at UI Healthcare, to our department chairs, to our specialty uh, colleagues, and, and then had community focus groups with members um, of the LGBTQ plus community, primarily transgender folks, because they really are the people who experience the most discrimination in healthcare, and they really were the impetus for us starting our clinic. And so since that time, we've added on additional primary care providers, we've expanded our specialty partnerships, um, and we have seen probably somewhere around eight to 10,000 Iowans who identify as LGBTQ plus. And I think people often think, of course this works. We live in Johnson County. You look around and you can't help but bump into a queer person, right? Like they're everywhere. <laughs> but the reality is, is that 80% of our patients come from outside of Johnson County. So they are driving miles and miles and hours and hours to receive healthcare that they have been unable to receive in their local communities. And Dr. Nisley and I are both you know, Carver College of Medicine faculty, we are academics and teachers, and it is our mission to definitely work ourselves out of our job. I love my job. This is an, an amazing gift that I have to be able to really provide care almost solely to this population, but I would also love it if my patients didn't have to drive to see me and that they could receive the same high quality care 
in a welcoming and affirming environment in their hometown. And can you talk about just briefly some of the services that the clinic provides for its patients? So we do really primary care. So we manage a lot of chronic illness, things like high blood pressure and diabetes and mental health and all that type of thing um, for anyone who identifies as LGBTQ plus or happens to be kind of in a family unit with someone who does. Uh, We do quite a bit of HIV um, prophylaxis or PrEP, pre-exposure prophylaxis. We, of course, do a lot of testing and counseling and, and anticipatory guidance regarding, regarding sexually transmitted infections. And then we also do a lot of work with, with transgender and non-binary persons. Probably 70 to 80 percent of our patients identify as trans or non-binary. This is, I think, the one thing that people can't necessarily find and that they specifically need is they have gender dysphoria and there is treatment for gender dysphoria. And so we do a lot of um, hormone therapy. We also help these folks arrange and facilitate consultations with some of our specialty providers uh, to have some of these surgical procedures done. And our goal and our hope is that we at the University of Iowa here can really become a a destination location for people across not only the state of Iowa, but across this region and even nationally, where they can come and receive care by world-renowned surgeons that perform these gender-affirming surgeries. Mm -hmm. What has been your reaction to the anti-trans legislation coming forward? I saw something that this is going to be the worst year for state legislative attacks on LGBTQ people in history. So what, I guess, what is your reaction to what we've been seeing? It is terrifying and it is discouraging. And, and I also want to, you know, express my gratitude and thanks that the 14 bills that were introduced in our state of Iowa legislature, that all 14 of them did not move out of committee and they all died, even though these bills might not have made it out of committee and and, um, didn't have the chance to become law, just the fact that they were proposed and talked about and in the news cycle and that they have actually passed in other states, many other states. It is damaging in, in ways that I just don't think that we can one, conceptualize, or two, ever really know the full extent of it. Many of these bills do really target trans youth. We will have to continue to kind of fight these off over the next couple of years unless the makeup of our state legislature changes. Mm -hmm. Well, it's time to talk about art, and I'm really excited to hear a bit about your best show ever, maybe two best shows ever, Maybe kick us off, start with one, and just totally set the scene for us from beginning to end. So because it was a very long time ago, I don't remember the exact date. I came to Iowa City in the summer of 2002, and it was either that summer, maybe the fall, maybe 2003. But in my mind, I believe that it was 2002, because as I remember it, some of the first people that I met in Iowa City were queer identified folks. And it was just what I needed to expand my little mind that had this certain just history kind of laid out in front of me, which did not include something like being able to live out and openly as an LGBTQ plus identified person. 
And so as I met my first gay friends and they took me to the gay bar, um, Alley Cat, as it was called then, Studio 13 now, um, they also said, oh my gosh, the Indigo Girls are coming to the IMU. Like everybody and anybody is going to be there. And so we're going to be there too. And so (laughs) what I remember is waiting at the doors to get in. So standing on the steps of the IMU and we, we, we did our, we, you know, we were really good lesbians. We got there early (laughs) and we were surrounded by, I think every other lesbian identified or queer identified person within a 250 mile radius of the IMU that day. And it was like a reunion and a party and a get to know you. And I just, it was such a formative event in my life in terms of, um, of, of, of just like providing me with the imagination for what my life could actually be like seeing gay folks in the flesh, um, and having this sort of, you know, that like pre-concert energy. And then, you know, like that, that was sort of amazing. And then you get to walk in and go listen to the Indigo Girls, which, which is, you know, I mean, just, it was, it was great. Um, and I think that it was in that same summer and or fall that Dar Williams also came to the IMU. And that, event was a much smaller room, a more intimate setting. It was folding chairs and Dar Williams sitting, you know, kind of at the front with her guitar and just, uh, just, you know, singing all of her amazing indie folk rock songs. And one of her favorite songs that she does is titled Iowa. Um, and I think that it might be the first time that I had probably ever even heard of her or heard any of her music. Um, and and this was sort of a similar room filled with a lot of queer folks. She has this, this kind of cultish queer following. But I remember distinctly hearing her song about Iowa and just kind of having tears come to my eyes because I had such such a great amount of, you know, sentimental thoughts about this little town of Iowa City and the state and how it it changed the whole trajectory of my life and became this possibility model for, for who I could be and how I could live. Wow. Okay. What I think I love about both of these is that it, it's not all about the artist or the art form itself, but it's about community. Um, especially with, you know, the Indigo girls standing in line and feeling, you know, at, feeling at one with everyone who else was in line, feeling community with the people who were there, like feeling seen. Um, and I think that's, I mean, going to an art show, I don't know. I almost think maybe that has more of an impact on me too, going to an art show and knowing I'm around people who have similar mindsets or interests or uh, philosophies about life and the potential of the, all those energies meeting and coalescing. And it's always such a beautiful thing that I think, you know, we, we often just think about, you know, who's the performer, you know, have they, are they Grammy nominated? I don't know, (laughs) but it's, it is so much about who's in the room next to you. You got it. 
Yeah. And yeah. And I couldn't agree with any of that more. And I think, um, I think for folks in marginalized communities that having that shared space, that sense of solidarity, that, you know, just that visibility, um, that there's, there's nothing probably as, as healing, um, as sort of knowing that you're not alone. Right. And I think that that's what it does. Yeah, that's beautiful. Um, well, thank you again so much for popping in the, popping in the closet. (laughs) I know I'm way out of the closet though. It's it's, it's a little bit ironic that I'm sitting in my closet. Not even intentional. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, taking time out of the day, uh, to talk about art, to talk about things that matter, um, and we appreciate you so much and everything that you do for our community. So thank thanks you. so much, Ellie. I'm so uh, honored and privileged to be able to have the opportunity to come and speak with you. And it was fun. It was great. Our song of the week is Ghost by Iowa City singer-songwriter Hannah Fry. It's a single off her 2019 release, White Picket Fence, which was recorded at Flat Black Studios. She's currently working on a new record, and you may even be seeing some performances from her soon as well. If you like this song, you should first check out her submission for the NPR Tiny Desk concert because it is just absolutely lovely and her band is phenomenal. Step two, go to Bandcamp and grab the album. You'll not be disappointed. It's insanely catchy. You might even hate me for it. Uh, It's going to be stuck in your head all the time. Any hoodle, (laughs) here it is, Ghost by Hannah Fry. Talking to 
I'm Carrie Houchenswit. With more than a decade of experience and expertise in both tax and personal finance, my firm provides comprehensive financial guidance and tax preparation for both the ordinary and extraordinary periods of your life. Carrie Houchenswit Tax and Financial Services, LLC, strives to illuminate your family's path to a brighter financial future. Visit our team online at houchenswit.com or call 319-358-2854 for more information. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org slash friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. And by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.